Amen. So we're going to continue our survey of the Bible tonight. Uh, we're working our way from Genesis to Revelation. We're in Ezra chapter 9. We're going to finish up the book of Ezra tonight. We're going to see in tonight's uh, text the most heartfelt intercessory prayer, uh, one of the, the best you can find in the Old Testament. Uh, in order to fully comprehend why the prayer is so intense, we, we need to remember some things that have transpired to get the Israelites to this place. Uh, God had given the nation of Israel instruction before entering into the promised land, and it was a, a serious warning that was given to them not to follow after uh, the gods of the people who dwelled in the land that they were going in to possess. And, and so there was a pretty stern warning about not mingling with these people. And uh, there were, they, they were warned against marrying the people of the land and, and having that intermarriage take place with the foreign people and, and making themselves unequally yoked with these folks that would worship pagan gods and um, and and it was a, a warning that was for their benefit. It, it was, uh, you know, a lot of times we we look at it, you know, through our eyes today and we hear pastors talk about not being unequally yoked and we think that, you know, God is being mean by not letting us pick who we want to pick to get in a relationship with. And and it's not a punitive kind of statement. It's, it's to protect the Israelites as it's to protect us that the Lord speaks against that because when you yoke yourself to somebody that's going a different direction than you are, it's going to bring complications into your life. And, and so they had strict warning. And uh, as, as you remember, as we were studying through the Kings and Chronicles, we noticed that there was this pattern that, that just repeated itself and the Israelites were drawn toward the people and uh, it led to the worship of the idols of the land and the, the false gods that these people had yielded their lives to. And, and so uh, over and over again, we, we saw it repeat itself in the, in the history of Israel. In fact, if you're reading with us in the daily manna and you're going through the Bible with us, you're in Second Kings right now. So you've, you've been pretty much reading it on a daily basis that... They just keep going back to this sin of Jeroboam and worshiping idols, and they uh, fail to tear down the high places that, that have been set up, and they're, they're worshiping these pagan gods. And so it was something that Israel uh, failed to take the, the warning from God, and they, they just continued to cycle in this. And uh, the gods that they had yielded to in this land were gods of power and pleasure and intellect. And uh, and so over and over, we saw God send warning to them through the prophets uh, to, to stay away from these false gods. And uh, then we saw uh, the prophets warn the kings about their abominations and the evil practices of worship that they were doing to these false gods. And and the warnings came that God was going to judge them if they continued in this practice. Well, they didn't heed the warnings of God uh, through the prophets, and therefore 
we saw that the northern tribes, uh, the ten tribes that were referred to as Israel in the north, uh, they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And then years later, the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin were taken captive by the Babylonians because they they failed to heed the warnings that God was bringing to them through the prophets. They didn't heed the warning that he originally gave them, and so they found themselves in captivity. Well, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, God uh, raised up a king in Persia, uh, King Cyrus, uh, at that 70-year mark. It was kind of that interesting little take on time, the land they had never given rest as they were instructed. And so for 490 years, they, they didn't give the land a Sabbath, and for 70 years they were uh, held in captivity. It was just enough for the, the Lord to get back his Sabbath years on that land. Well, after this, this King Cyrus is raised into power in Persia, and Cyrus issues a decree that allows the Jews to leave captivity, and those who wanted on their own free will could go back into Jerusalem, and they could uh, again build their temple and restore the temple and, and worship the Lord in Jerusalem. And uh, many went, many more stayed back. Uh, it was surprising how few actually uh, had that free will to go and, and chose to go back into Jerusalem. Uh, it just kind of gave us that impression that many of them were comfortable even in their captivity, they, they liked where, where they were and, and they didn't want to go back to that unknown and, and so they stayed. And, and so uh, those who went restored the temple and then 57 years later, a new king's on, on the throne, Artaxerxes, and he gives Ezra the commission to take more people into the land and to go uh, into Jerusalem he gives Ezra authority to actually govern the people and to execute judgment uh, with the whole idea of reestablishing the temple worship and restoring the walls. The walls had still not been restored. Now, if you remember, he brought great wealth along with him as they traveled and, and went into Jerusalem. Uh, when they arrived, they meticulously accounted for everything that was given to them to take into Jerusalem. And, uh, and that brings us to where we're at in chapter 9. And it says, when these things were done, and that's speaking of the accounting for all of the treasure that was given to them to bring into Jerusalem, when all these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So right away, Ezra is kind of taken back by what has transpired in these 57 years since this first 
group had arrived back into uh, Jerusalem. They had already fallen back into the practices that put them into exile to begin with. They, they, they went right back to the things uh, that caused the Lord to discipline them as a nation and put them in captivity. And, and so they, they started marrying into all of these ites, uh, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and all, all of these factions of people they, they started intermarrying with. And uh, it says that it started with the leaders and the rulers that were in place. And, and so they failed once again to separate themselves from these pagan people that were worshiping pagan gods and pagan idols. And folks, we need to learn a lesson from the Israelites because, you know, we, we look at them and a lot of times, you know, when I'm reading, I'm thinking, come on, guys. It's like time and time again, but, but really, we're, we're just as prone to do this as they are. We have our own way of uh, yielding ourselves to the pagan things of the land. And uh, so we, we can learn from these Israelites. Uh, and I've been watching Christians for decades do this very same thing uh, in, in modern day. And I, I'm not just talking about dating and marriage. I mean, that's, that's a whole subject in itself, and that's uh, an area that, that correction has been uh, happening over and over and over again in people's lives because they choose to reject the Lord's instruction and take it on themselves. But, but it goes beyond dating and marriage. And uh, there's friendships that really take people into pagan things and, and destructive things. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard lots of arguments about this. I've heard lots of, you know, reasons why people will allow themselves to get uh, drawn in. And, you know, many of them sound spiritual. It's like, you know, I... I, I'm going over there to evangelize, and I'm going to share my faith, and and you know we you know we hang out in the bar together, and I'm talking about Jesus, and and the problem is is that you're in a place where you're probably going to compromise. I mean, if you want to share Jesus with them, that's great. I mean, we need to share Jesus with with people who aren't saved. I mean, we're commissioned to do that. We are commissioned to share our faith, but, but we have to use some wisdom in this. If we put ourselves in places that we're going to compromise, then the chances are we're going to compromise. I mean, that's just our human nature, and, and so we don't want to do that. You know, I, I often have this conversation with people who come to the Lord, you know, out of a, a troubled background. Maybe it's, it's drugs or alcohol and you know, you, you start talking with them and they're saying, you know, I really want to, I want to stay clean. I want to stay on the right track. And it's like, well, this is what you have to do. You have to cut your ties with all the people you used to run with. And they look at me and they say, well, those are my friends. It's like, well, I'm just going to tell you this from experience. Those friends are going to have you back in dope or back drinking again in, in no time just because that's what they do. They're, they're still not saved. And, and so that's, they're still in that lifestyle. And so you've got to cut yourself away from that in order to follow the Lord. Does it mean you can never tell them about Jesus? No. 
but you just don't go into that environment to do it because you're going to fail. Uh, person after person has that experience. And so um, you, have to, you have to be careful. There are many casualties that uh, end up just giving up in their walk with the Lord and they just go right back into the old lifestyle. It's, it's just a horrible thing to watch happen. And this is the deal. It can't be blamed on the ites, uh, those people who are still in paganism and pagan worship and still into that other stuff. It was the heart of the Israelites that brought this into the camp. You can't blame it on the foreigners. The Israelites had warning. They'd already been disciplined for it. They knew the Lord was going to... Um, you know, honor his his word and his instruction to them. And, and so they knew that they weren't supposed to do this, and yet they still went right back to this old practice. And and so it's the same for us. We, we can't blame the unbelievers' influence on our life. I mean, they're just doing what unbelievers do. They don't have the same moral compass we're supposed to have. And so we, we can't say that, you know, it was... It was them forcing their influence. No, we subjected ourselves to the influence. And that's what Israel did. And that's how they fell and ended up in these marriages that they weren't supposed to be in. And, and so Ezra hears this news. And in verse 3, he goes on and, and it says, And when, he, when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, and I plucked out some, of, some hair of my head and beard, and sat down astonished. Now, that's, that's, we read that response, and we think that's kind of a weird thing to do. You know, rip your clothes and start plucking hairs out of your head and plucking hair out of your beard. That's kind of a strange response. Well, in that culture, that wasn't a strange response. That was a, that was a sign of grief, that, that there was... Uh, this, this was his response to the apostasy that had been taking place with the, the, that first group of, of people who went back into the land. Remember, he had just arrived after 57 years, and, and the temple was built, but the walls were still in disrepair. And, and so uh, allowing the foreign people to come in through these broken down walls and mingle with the people, and, and he sees the failure in the leaders that came in, and the people, and, and he goes into this, this type of mourning over what he's seeing. And this, this was a, a way of expressing that, that you were in mourning in that culture. And, and so uh, he tears his clothes and he plucks out the hair in a way of expressing grief over what has taken place in Israel. And I, I think it's, uh, uh, and I think about his response and I wonder if that's the same response that we should have as we look at the apostasy of the church in our day. You know, our, our typical response is to get upset about it, maybe even angry about what's taking place. And, um, you know, many, many leaders and teachers go into a tirade about the condition of the church. And I, I need to confess, that's an easy thing to do. I find myself leaning that direction when I look at the the condition of the church today it 
it troubles me that that we're headed the direction we're headed and and it's easy to get angry about it it's easy to get upset about what we're seeing but Ezra shows an example of a a true spiritual leader in in how he reacts to what he's seeing it brings him to this point of grief over the condition of God's people. And, and you know, that's, that's the heart I desire. I mean, that's really the heart I want to have and the response that I want to have when I, when I look at what's happening. Um, you know, I go for a walk most mornings. I can't say every morning because sometimes the, the clock wins. But, but most of the time, I'm up real early and I go for a walk and um, try to get three miles in and I, I'm up on the hill over there, so I'm I'm walking around the neighborhood, and I'm I'm looking down over the valley, and you know sometimes it just grips me, you know, and I when I think about just just Apple Valley, you know, just just this area, and how many people are lost, and I think, man, you know, we we have opportunity after opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And um, we have the solution to what's happening in the craziness of our society today. And, you know, Phil was just talking to me before I came, came up here tonight. And he was telling me, that Phil he sits back in the corner back there. Phil goes out every week and, and does street witnessing. Now, if you didn't notice, he has a walker. And so it's hard for him to go out. It's not a simple thing, but he goes out because he believes the Lord wants him to go out, passes out tracks, and shares the Lord with people. And and I and I think about that, and I think, man, we, we have the answer, and it should grieve us when we see what's taking place. When we see how many lost people there are around us. Instead of being angry with their behavior, I mean. Some of the stuff they do really does disturb us. But, man, Lord, give us that grief over their soul. That, that grief that would give us a compassion to share Jesus with them and give them the answer that they need. And he goes on to verse 4, he says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, of the God of Israel, assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. And, and so the, the people that came with Ezra trembled at the word of God as they, they saw the transgression of those who had come with Zerubbabel in that first group and, and were now corrupt. And you know what stands out here is the phrase, they trembled at the word of God. You know, as, as the word of God was brought forth, they trembled hearing it. It's one of those things that, that, that seem to bring me to the edge of the tirade <laughs> is the lack of honor and respect that, that we see in our culture today. And, and I'm not talking about society. I'm talking about our Christian culture today and, and seeing the lack of honor and respect for God's Word. And there, there's just this minimizing of God's Word and, and its place in the, the life of the church, in the individual life of the Christian. And we're, we're trying so hard to get along with everybody 
that we're watering down the very instruction that God has given to us to live life and to live it more abundantly and to its fullest. And we're watering it down trying to appease people. Folks, sometimes the the Word of God is offensive. And, you know, I I don't wake up in the morning on Sunday morning and think, you know what, today I think I want to be offensive and come here and preach a message so I can offend people. I, I I don't remember ever waking up and thinking, man, today would be a good day to be offensive. But I know there are times when I'm preaching God's Word and I'm teaching what it says that those very words come out and people are offended by them. There are things about God's Word that should offend us if we're not in compliance with what He's instructed. And and so we, we shouldn't be afraid of that. We don't have to water it down. We don't have to be unloving, but we have to be truthful. We have to speak the truth. I mean, we, we're encouraged to do that in love, and we should, but truth is essential. And there's a need to be reverent to the Word of God and to, to in our own personal view of God's Word, be uh, a person who honors God's Word and has reverence for God's Word. Have a high priority for His Word in our life. A higher priority than any other voice that we listen to. To listen to Him. Church, we need to hear this. And, and now... They, they hear a prayer of Ezra. In verse 5 it goes on, it says, At the evening sacrifice, <coughs> I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for... Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. You know, there there was definitely a time for mourning or grief about what he was seeing and the spirit, spiritual condition of the people, but there was also a time to pray. And and Ezra was at that place. He he had mourned over it, he had grieved, but now it was time to intercede and to pray. And it was Ezra's prayer, but but it was probably that, that time of the evening sacrifice would have been the assembly gathering together, and, and he may have actually been uh, either modeling this prayer or leading the group in prayer. Um, and, and so we, we see him go into this posture of prayer. Now, you know, whenever we read about somebody going to their knees in prayer, you know, people try to make, you know, legalism out of just about anything. And they say, oh, you know, Ezra prayed on his knees, so we have to pray on our knees if we want God to hear us. Now, this is the deal. There are many different postures that you can have when you pray. Um, if you're driving your car and praying, don't get on your knees. Okay, that, that would be a bad, bad choice. Uh you know, but if, if you're at home and you, and you want to, you know, spend some time in prayer before the Lord, I mean, there's nothing wrong with getting on your knees. It doesn't make you more spiritual. <laughs> the, that's the thing we got to get in our head. The, the posture really is our heart. 
and how our heart is postured before the Lord. You could do that standing. You could do it prostrate on the ground. You could do it um, on your knees. You could you could do it in any position. It really is a, a posture of our heart that matters the most. And and so we see here though that that he falls to his knees. He lifts up his hands. Uh, J. Vernon McGee had something interesting in his commentary about this. It says, what does it mean to spread out your hands to God? It means that you are not concealing anything. It means when you go to God in prayer, friend, that your mind and your soul stand absolutely naked before him. And Ezra went to God with his hands outspread, and he was holding nothing at all back from God. Now, that's one way to express that to God, to say, you know, I'm, I'm standing before you and I'm all yours. I'm, you have everything in me, you know. And, and so, uh, you know, in the New Testament, Paul gives us this instruction, 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 8, it says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and, and doubting. Does that mean it's the only way God hears your prayer? No. But it's, it's one way of expressing to the Lord that I'm holding nothing back. You know, maybe if you're new to church and you see people in worship lifting their hands, they're, they're not fanatics. They're not, they're not crazy. They're just expressing to the Lord, you know, I'm yours, Lord. Everything I have, everything in me. And, and you, don't, you don't have to run out the back door and think, oh, it's one of those churches. I'm out of here. Nothing weird about it. It's just knowing that He is everything. We, we come to Him in complete surrender to His authority and His will. And, and again, the posture really comes from our heart. It, it has little to do with the outward. The outward is just maybe a way of getting our heart into that right place. But, but it's posturing our heart before Him. And He begins to pray by saying He can't even lift His face to God. Uh, he, he's ashamed by the behavior of the people. The iniquities of the people have risen so high that they're higher than their heads. Now, notice that he's including himself, even though he wasn't there. He's including himself in the people as, as he makes this confession. He, he was part of the nation. He was subject to whatever God was going to bring against the nation. He was a part of the people that had had failed and uh, subject to that judgment. So what, what is the application for today? Well, there, there's apostasy happening in the church today. I mean, if you, if you don't know that, all you have to do is open your eyes and, and see what's happening. And there's apostasy taking place. There's people falling away. There, there are liberal churches springing up all across the nation that have no regard for God's Word. And, and so... Uh, if there is, in fact, apostasy happening in the church, we are part of the body of Christ. All of us are. And, and so um, it affects us. It, it affects our life in Christ. And, and so we should be grieved that it's taking place and equally concerned for what is happening. It's a reflection of us. As society looks at the church, they, they see Christians in general. They don't see just you. They see, they see Christianity as a package. 
And, and so it affects us. And, and so he prays earnestly. In verse 7 it says, Since the days of our, our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands and to the sword to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in this holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us measure of revival in our bondage. For we, are sla- we were slaves, yet... Our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to, re- to revive us, to repair the house of God, to rebuild its ruins, and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. So he, he shows his willingness to be forthright in his prayer, confessing the guilt of the people. You know, before a real revival can take place, you know, we we talk a lot about revival and uh, hopefully, you know, we're praying together about revival here in in our country and and beyond. But before revival can start, repentance has to come forth. When Solomon was dedicating the temple, he made this statement for the nation in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12 to 15. It says, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice, speaking of the temple. When I shut up heaven and there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among the peop- my people, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn, that's the repentance, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. And so um, as, as a nation, he gives this instruction and he says, if, if you are willing to repent and to turn and to turn back to me, then I will heal the land. I will heal your nation. I will restore you and revive you. There will be revival that breaks forth. Now, on a personal level, the Word of God speaks to this as well. You remember when David had sinned against Bathsheba or sinned with Bathsheba against the Lord and against Uriah? In Psalm 51, it's a psalm of confession and, and repentance. In verse 9, 9 to 12, he says, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. This is David crying out to God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in, within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation and uphold me in your gen- generous spirit. And as as David was confessing his sin and he was turning to the Lord, he was, he was expecting the Lord to restore that relationship that he had with him, that joy of the salvation that he knew in God. And, and so um, 
it, it's important that repentance and, and coming clean with the Lord take place. And so Ezra repents for the sin of Israel and confesses it and speaks to, uh, then he speaks to God of his goodness and his mercy that he has shown to the nation already. It's not a bad thing to remember when you're praying the goodness of God. You know, we, we deserve to be put in hell. I mean, there isn't anybody in this room that deserves heaven. Every one of us have sinned against God, and, and we've done it uh, in many different ways. And so we, we deserve his wrath, and so it's only the goodness of God that we can sit here today and rejoice that we're saved, that we're born again, that we have that future expectation of heaven. It's the goodness of God that that is accessible to us. You know, oftentimes we, you know, in our prayer time with the Lord, we focus on what God is not doing for us instead of what He's already done. He's done so much to show Himself favorable toward us. In Philippians 4, Paul reminds us in verse 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, you guys know the next part. With thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. So we, we bring everything to Him in prayer, but we have thankful hearts for what He has already done for us. Even when we're bringing confession, like Ezra was, he remembered the goodness of God. And how, how God had, had restored them. He put it on the heart of the kings to let them go back into the nation. That was the Lord that did that. Continuing the prayer in verse 10. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, an uncleanness of peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore, do you give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons? and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? And so Ezra brings no excuses to the table when he prays. The Israelites were in direct disobedience to the Lord. And he tells the Lord, you know what, you haven't even punished us what we deserve to be punished. 
it shows that the posture of his prayer was correct. He had the, the right place in his heart. He, he understood that they, they did not have the right to stand before a perfect God. It was only by his goodness that they could. God, God could have added so much more to their punishment. It was the mercy of God that allowed his intercessory prayer for this nation to be answered. And mercy is what he asked for in verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our own guilt, and though no one can stand before you because of this. And so he, he pleads with the Lord about his remnant, this, this group of people. And Ezra was familiar with the prophets and what the prophets had said about the remnant. The remnant is something the Lord spoke about through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, over in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 to 23, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and, and such as have escaped the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who was defeated by them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though, uh, though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, the remnant of them will return. The destruction uh, decree shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make determined uh, a determined end in the midst of the land. And so there was a promise that this remnant was going to come back. This was the Lord's doing. And it's interesting that, you know, with this understanding, I'm sure Ezra had an understanding of this. He was a man of the word. He didn't try to talk his way out of the situation with the Lord. He says, here we are before you in all of our guilt. He just came clean. The appeal must be made for mercy to the guilty, not the deserving. When we cry out for the mercy of God, we have to understand that we don't deserve it. You can't, you can't deserve mercy. Mercy is given by God. It's not earned by us. We're guilty. Lord, we... We deserve everything that you send, is what Ezra is saying. Even though we, we, you have been good to us, we haven't really been punished as much as we deserve. And the fact that, that Israel still existed was a demonstration of the goodness of God. And the mercy and the grace and the long-suffering and the patience of God. And so his, his prayer was this open, bare naked confession without even a request. It's chapter, chapter 10. Now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men and women and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept very bitterly. After this great prayer meeting, the the revival begins to break out among the people. The re repentance leads to the revival. Revival leads to reformation. 
And so Ezra's praying, he's bowing down. The Hebrew word there for bowing down suggests that he threw himself on the ground. He just didn't, you know, kind of slump down. It, he just threw himself down on the ground before the Lord. And he's weeping and confessing. And all the while, the people are gathering around as this is taking place. And they begin to repent. They begin to weep with him over their sin. That They are following the lead of this godly man. And, and they, are, they are sensing their need to repent. It shows that the people were struck by the conviction of sin and their need to confess. They, they regretted their sin just as Ezra had spoken about it. Now, throughout history, the revivals have come on the heels of this kind of repentance. The old Puritan John Trapp once said this about repentance. He said, speaking of repentance, he says, this is the soul's vomit which is the hardest kind of medicine, but healthsomest. Healthsomest, yeah. This is the this the devil knows, and therefore he holds the lips closed that the heart may not disburden itself by so wholesome evacuation. And in modern English, he's saying... The devil knows that confession evacuates the soul, and so he keeps your lips closed. You ever notice how hard it is to say sorry to somebody? You kind of turn into the fawns, and you're like, you know, and you just can't get the words out. There's a there's a reason for that because once confession is made, there's healing, there's release. And, and so repentance leads to that renewal, that revival. Verse 2, he goes on, And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now... Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all of these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Rise, for this matter is your responsibility. We are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So, so this man, Shechaniah, steps up to acknowledge on behalf of this this group of people who were now repenting and weeping and sorrowful, he he's the spokesman to Ezra. It's proof that the Holy Spirit was at work and that conviction was taking place, confession was taking place, brokenness was taking place. And Shechaniah is the one who actually suggests the plan to put things back into order and he says, let us make a covenant with God and, and put all of these away. The pagan wives. That's what their sin was, was taking the pagan wives. Now, before anybody that's in an unequally yoked marriage runs out and does away with their pagan husband or wife, 
This was a one-time thing in the nation of Israel. We actually have instruction in the New Testament about what we're supposed to do with an unbelieving spouse. So uh, I've taught that many times. I don't have time to go through it tonight. But, but this isn't your proof text to boot him out or to boot her out and say, all right, you're done. And so he exhorted those who were guilty to do what was right and stood beside them to show support. This was a godly man with conviction and, and the people were, were taking heart. It was an effective point of leadership. In verse 5, Then Ezra rose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to his word. And so they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehonanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread, drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem and whosoever or whoever would not come within three days according to the instructions of the leaders and elders. All his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from captivity. So again, Ezra mourned over the condition of the people and their willful sin to, uh, through this intermarriage and he fasts and he prays to the Lord that shows the heart of a true leader and and um, willing to intercede on their behalf and and seeking the Lord on behalf of the people. And now it seems as though he liked the counsel of Shechaniah. And, and so um, he immediately calls for the people to declare this oath. Remember, he was given permission to govern by the king. He was sent there with instructions that he could he could make those governing decisions. And so um, the the statement that they have three days to comply or they're going to be consequences, he had the authority to bring the consequences. And, and it shows us something uh, about repentance, though. It shows us that it isn't just a feeling about what's happening. There's actually an action to repentance. It's turning and going a different direction. There's a lot of people who feel bad about things they're doing, but it's not repentance. Repentance is the act of turning away and going the other direction. In fact, Paul said this in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. He says, Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but your sorrow led to repentance. So, yeah, you had a sorrowful feeling about it, but it led to the act of repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There are people who feel bad that, that remain in their sin, and it leads to death. But there are many who experience godly sorrow they they recognize you know what i've been doing the way i've been living my life the choices i have been making are against god they're not just against me or the the people i'm around it's against god and they recognize the the sorrow of disappointing god and and it leads to that repentance that that 
bringing the Lord into your life and turning and going a different direction. There's an action involved. In verse 9, he says, So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. And so the it's another sign the Holy Spirit had moved on the hearts of the people. True repentance was taking place. They're standing out in the rain, repenting for the sin. Set aside their own comfort. And so they repent. Verse 10, Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have transgressed and have taken pagan wise, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land, peoples of the land and from your pagan wives. And, and so now it was time to put it into action, to actually do what was needed to be done. James tells us in James chapter 1 to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. Deceiving yourselves. We're, we're to put into practice what we know to be right. Not, not just learn it, not just know it, but put it into action. And, and so they were putting it into action. This is what they do in verse 12. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, we must do, so we must do. But there are many people. It is a season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside, nor... Is this the work of one or two days? For there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please, let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with their elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of God is turned away from us in this matter. Only uh, Jonathan, the son of Ashel, and Jehaiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshalem and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. And so they, they immediately agree that they're in sin, but because of the weather, the amount of people, they, they ask for time to sort it out. Is this a legitimate request, or are they stalling? Well, I think it answers this in the next couple of verses, verse 16. The descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's household, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. That's an important part, to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. They had to question each man who had taken a pagan wife and examine their situation. What were they examining? Well, most likely they were examining to find out if if this pagan wife had forsook the paganism and is now following Jehovah, the true God. If so, there's no need to put her away. They could stay married because they're equally yoked now. If they are still involved in paganism, then they would be put out. And so they had this examination that there was a need for examination. You know, examination is a good thing, even for us today, that, that looking at our lives to see how it measures up to the Lord's instruction. 
you know, several times in the Scripture we're encouraged to do this. In Lamentations 3.40, it says, Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. You know, to put the template of God's Word on our life and examine our life. And if there's, if there's failure, if there's a place where we need to repent and turn back to the Lord, we turn back. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. And, and so there's a, there's a need to look at our own lives and not, not just assume things are okay, but, but to examine ourselves. In your own quiet time, when you're sitting before the Lord and you're reading His Word, don't just check it off and say, all right, I finished today's reading. Cool. I'm going to get through this Bible in a year. Watch. Let the Bible sit on your life as you read it and examine yourself based on what it says. And if there's an area for correction, let the Lord correct you and move you. Verse 18, And among the sons of the priests, who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Jeshua, the sons of uh, Zodak and his brothers, Messiah and all these other guys. And, and I'm going to let you read all these names because I'm going to slaughter them. But if you get to the last verse, it says, All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. So it's interesting that the, the first part of this list is the priests that fell into sin, the leaders. He, I think it's interesting whenever he lists names of people who entered into sin, you realize that's recorded forever? Can you imagine if that was still happening today and the Lord recorded for everybody to see <laughs> the things that go on inside of our heart and our life? That's a scary thought. But these... These priests were in violation. They're listed here. They're the ones that should have known better. They were entrusted with the Word of God. They should have known what they were doing was against the Lord. The people should have known, but, but especially the priests and leaders, they should have known. Instead, they violated the covenant that they had with the Lord, and, and so their name is listed for all time. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 4.17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And I think, think it's a, a healthy thing for us as spiritual people, spiritual leaders, to evaluate ourselves and to look at our life based on on what God says about us and and really make that check often. You know, if if we allow our life to get away from the Word of God for a time, it's really easy to slip back into old habits. It, it really doesn't take long at all. And so we, we have to have that constant measurement going on, constant input from the Lord. And And so we see this group of people after the the priests, they were following the leaders right into the sin. May, may we prevent that in the life of the church today. Let's pray together.